0: Hello and Shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. Shalom, shalom, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Image Bears Radio. I am your host, Joe Amon, coming to you all the way from southwest Louisiana. And I just want to know, how are you? <laughs> I hope you're doing well. I hope your week is going well and everything uh, is going to plan. And you know what? If everything is not going to plan, then I sure hope That uh, you feel the presence of Hashem with you and that uh, He is guiding you and giving you peace and shalom uh, through whatever process you're going through. Uh, Thank you guys so much for being with us today. If it is your first time stopping by, then uh, hey, how's it going? glad that you stopped by uh, the show today, Image Bearers Radio. We are super excited, as always. We have a great privilege to be on Hebrew Nation, and uh, we have a wonderful community. So, hey, you guys that are used to listening, thank you for your continued support and comments and all that you do to help build this community. Uh, It's super awesome. Uh, I am, of course, the pastor at Out of Ashes Ministries in DeRitter, Louisiana, and uh, if you are looking for a fellowship, looking for somewhere to hang out on Shabbat, we would love to have you come hang out with us. We live stream our services each Shabbat at 10 a.m. Central, to our website at outofashesministries.org. We also simulcast to Facebook, where there's a, a really active chat you can get involved in, and to YouTube as well, and then everything's archived after the fact uh, on our website and on YouTube, and uh, audio is available, on uh, podcasts, and all kinds of different places. You can find us pretty much anywhere uh, if you just look a little bit. So, uh, awesome community we have locally and across the country, and even overseas, and uh, so we're just really thankful for what Hashem is doing uh, with a little tiny ministry in the middle of nowhere. Um, we would say around here, Podunk, uh, in the middle of the woods, uh, Louisiana, we're just super humbled and it's amazing. Uh, when I think about it too much, it makes my head hurt. So I'm not going to th- think about it too much, I'm just going to be uh, really grateful. And uh, we are going to pray and ask the Father to bless our time together and bless Him uh, in our time together. And then we're going to get in- into this week's topic, which is, oh man, I nerd out. I'm just warning you, I nerd out and get really excited about this. We are a week behind, uh, or two weeks behind, but this is Parsha Truma and the building of the Mishkan. So I hope you are as excited as I am. Let's go to the Father before we start in prayer. Avinu Shabbat Shemayim, our Father in heaven. We are so incredibly grateful, more than we can even put together in our finite words. Uh, Grateful to you for all that you are and that you've called us on this journey and called us together. And we have wonderful people surrounding us, and we want to bless you for it today through Yeshua, our Messiah. So this week, as I said, we are two weeks behind. I believe Uh, we took a couple of weeks to do Parsha Mishpatim, which we took two weeks to talk about uh, Hebrew slaves, Eved Ivrit, and and biblical slavery and what that looks like. uh, Because I think all of us that are Americans uh, tend to have a lot of baggage when it comes to this particular. Uh, biblical text. And so I hope those last couple of weeks were helpful in helping you kind of work through it and thinking about it in a little different way. We read from uh, some of the uh, commentary, rabbinic commentary uh, on slaves and uh, Mishnah and stuff. And it's just, it was really helpful for me. Every year uh, when this Parsha comes around, I tend to scratch a little bit deeper and get a little bit more understanding of context and history. And it just helps right the ship in my own mind, and uh, make sense of what Hashem is asking for and how it was actually done in ancient Israel. So I do hope that you found that helpful. If you did, pass it on to somebody. I would really appreciate that. Um, So this week, we are actually in the next Parsha, which is, oh man, it is just one of my absolute favorites. Uh, I, I don't know if it's right or wrong to have a favorite. But this one is pretty close. Um, this is Parsha Truma, where we begin talking about the, um, the tabernacle, the building of the tabernacle, of course. And I just absolutely, again, I nerd out. I get excited. All right. So enough flopping around. (laughs) Let's get to reading. So this is in um, Shemot, Exodus chapter 25. And we're going to start in verse one, and we're just going to read through the first section, and then we're going to skip over a little bit uh, and talk about another important part of uh, this parsha, it's all important, but a part that I really enjoy. So, uh, this is Shemot chapter 25, Exodus 25. And it says, Hashem spoke to Moshe, saying, uh, Speak to B'nai Israel, the children of Israel, and let them take for me a portion. Teruma is the Hebrew there. That's where the title of our parsha comes from, a teruma. So, what is a teruma? Well, truma is uh, teruma. That's a really non Hebrew way to say it. Truma um, is a free will offering. Uh, As we'll read in, you know, it goes on to explain it. Every man whose heart motivates him, right? Every man whose heart motivates him, uh, you shall, uh, you shall take my portion. Uh, Verse three, this is the portion you shall take from them. uh, Gold, silver, and copper, and turquoise, purple, Scarlet wool, linen, goat hair, ram, uh, dyed ram skins, uh, skins, acacia wood, oil for illumination, spices for the anointment oil and aromatic incense, uh, shoham stones and stones for the settings for the ephod and for the breastplate. All right. So let's stop right there and let's talk a little bit about these few, uh, opening verses because there's a ton in here and I'm sure there's a ton I, I miss. Well, I know there's a ton I miss, but, uh, of the stuff that I know is there. Uh, I get really excited about it. So uh, so Hashem speaks to Moses, and first he says, speak to B'nai Israel. And I've said this before, probably on the podcast, but if I hadn't haven't, uh, let me just say it now. Uh, you, each Shabbat, we during our services, uh, we do Birkat Koinim, where we bless, we get all the kids up front. If you've seen our live stream, um, they stand under a large tallit. Talit uh, Kadol, and we pray for them. Uh, we say the ironic blessing over them, place Hashem's name on them. And um, it is striking to me as I think about this, I've said it over and over and over, but it bears repeating um, just how just how brilliant the mind of Hashem is that He gave us children uh, for adults to be responsible for and we all know if you've raised children you know how difficult it is uh, it's it's difficult but it's fun and it's uh, exhilarating and it's frustrating and it's the wildest adventure you'll ever go on um, all wrapped up into one into one big experience um, but something came to me several years ago uh, you know in all of our striving and our struggling as adults to you know, to try to please God and try to find truth. And, you know, I have the truth. No, they have the truth. Or we have the truth and, you know, whatever. Um, and, you know, false prophets over here and false prophets over there and, and all the stuff that we do, the judgmental stuff and all the cri- criticisms that we have. Um, one thing that we don't, we don't remember is that the scriptures never call us the adults of God. The Torah, the, none of the scriptures ever goes, he never goes, Moses, finally, after you know forty years in the wilderness, speak to them as adults, never does He always refers to Israel as the children of Israel, B'nai Israel, the children of Israel and I just think that 's really super comforting for me um, that god doesn 't see me as an adult woohoo win that 's a win that is a big win on our part because uh, we're learning right, and so take a deep breath i 'm um, not saying- re- you know relax in in your you know your pursuit of a shim or anything—that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying in the self, the self uh, the doubt, the, the self judgment, uh, the self, you know, criticism, and all that kind of stuff. Take just back off on that a little bit. God sees us as children, and He gave us children, I believe, in large part to show us what He sees. So you know, I hope that's helpful for someone today. It's helpful for me every time I think about it uh, because I take myself way too seriously sometimes. And it's good to remember that I expect more, we expect more of ourselves. I expect more of myself a lot of times than I think Hashem does. Ooh, I know that hurts. Uh, but anyway, I think it's true. All right, so speak to the children of Israel, B'nai Israel, and let them take from me a portion, like I said, a terumah, which is a free will offering, which it means uh, if someone's heart moves them to give, they give. If someone's heart doesn't move them to give, they don't give. And everybody's good with it. Um, but it's a free will offering, and no, there's no set amount. There's no stipulated amount. Uh, now, when I taught this a few weeks ago at our Shabbat fellowship, I went into the tithe, et cetera, et cetera, and all that. If you'd like uh, to hear that, go back and check out um, Parshat Turumah um, a couple of weeks ago on our website or on YouTube, uh, because there's some interesting things that I, I, interesting ways I look at the tide that I don't hear many other people talk about in the, in the same way. And so if you have questions about the tide or struggling with the tide, go check that out. You might find it helpful. Um, but Cliff's Notes version is, uh, well, no, I'm not even going to get into it cause I, I don't have time this episode. Go, go check that out. Uh, all right. And he says, so then he goes through all the things that, uh, they are to take, uh, as in the terumah, in the offering, and uh, just some just some uh, nerdy Hebrew stuff, real quick. Uh, in verse four, your translation might say turquoise. It might say blue. It might have different you know descriptors for that uh, that word. Um, and this is a, a kind of a big deal with those of us who uh, start wearing tzitzit when we start learning Torah and we read the commandment in um, in uh, Bamidbar in Numbers. And um, we want to wear tights, right? And we see this thing about blue, and so we go down to Hobby Lobby. Don't laugh. I know you've done it. I've done it. I did it for years. We go down to Hobby Lobby and we find a blue, like what we think of blue should be, and we tie it in our tights. Usually with other colors and whatever, <clears throat> that's cool. Um, but we we have this idea of blue. Well, what what color blue? Well, some say turquoise. Some say this. Some say that. Um, in the Hebrew, it's techelet, which is actually a color. It's the name of a color. Um, it's not a, you know, it's not like, ah, uh, blue. Just pick something in the blue family. It can be navy blue or it can, no, it's techelet is a color. Uh, and it, it comes traditionally from uh, the muric snail uh, in Israel, which is, again, a whole nother discussion about why can you use uh, the byproduct of something that's unclean um, what is that all about? And we don't have time to get into that either. But um, but this uh, this is techelet. Um, there's some interesting things about techelet. Uh, particularly, I find interesting when Moshe goes up on the mountain, right, uh, to receive the commandments. Uh, he goes up with seventy elders, and they have a meal halfway up the mountain. And then Moses leaves them, and he continues up and goes the rest of the way, right? And when he's up there on the mountain, um, what does it say that he sees? It says that he sees, uh, he sees the hem of Hashem's garment or the, 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 you know, the bottom of his robe, the train of his robe, and he sees sapphire. Most translations will say sapphire. Um, but that idea is that the, that blue color that he sees is the floor of the throne room. Um, which in ancient cosmology, and again, I'm not a flat earther. I believe the Bible assumes a flat earth, but doesn't teach a flat earth. And so, in ancient cosmology, the earth is a solid, the sky rather is a solid dome, um, and the color of the sky is Tekelit. That's the that's the the sky uh, color, which the ancients believe that Hashem set above the earth right? And ruled over above the earth, all the gods did. So this is, um, this is, it fits, it ties together. And we are to wear that tekelit in our tzitzit. Um, and so uh, that's turquoise blue, it's tekelit, And you can buy t'chelet. Um If you do buy tekelit online, make sure you buy Patil tekelit. P-T-I-L t'chelet. Uh It doesn't run and uh, it is the most accurate that we know of uh, today. And so, buy the right techelet or you'll be very, very sad. Okay, so chalit, uh, and then purple. Uh, this is argamon. Uh, purple is argaman in, in Hebrew. A r a g m o n, or a r g <laughs> a m o n, argaman. Uh, look it up. Uh, and then the last one, scarlet wool. Uh, the Hebrew there is uh, tolat sheni, or sheni tolat. I'm not sure which one goes first. I've heard it both, both and seen it both ways. I'm not really sure, sure which is the most proper, but uh, this is another interesting color, uh, this crimson, uh, this red color. Uh, archaeologists tell us that uh, this color came most likely from this certain worm that lives in a certain type of tree uh, in, a, in groves in the land of Israel. And this worm was, was smushed or whatever, and the dye came from this worm, which again is a non-kosher animal, and we're using its byproducts for the tabernacle. I know it doesn't make sense, but again, not for this episode necessarily. Um, but a couple of interesting things about the muric snail and the, the tree worm, where the techelet and the uh, the telashini come from, is that... Uh, when Israel was out of the land for for all the years that they were out of the land these these uh, insects and crustaceans started to they became basically extinct and you couldn 't find them researchers you know had no idea uh, what was happening it was only when Israel came back into the land that they started to. They started these things started to come back into. They started to repopulate, and uh, there's a story uh, Joseph Good tells about uh, them actually finding a grove of trees with this particular worm for the crimson, uh, the crimson dye, and uh, it's really it's really fascinating Uh, the fact that when Israel's out of the land, the things that the land is supposed to provide just start to degrade almost. And then when, when the people of Israel, the Jewish people come back into the land, the land comes back to life because it's a partnership. And I I said this a week or two ago, um, if you have a land and no people, then you don't have anything, right? If you have a people and no land, then you you really don't have a, a nation. And so it's important that the land and the people, they're a partnership. They're tied together, inextricably tied together, I believe, by the promises of Hashem. So it's a, it's a really important and interesting thing. Uh, and so then we have linen and goat hair. That's pretty easy. Uh, red dyed ramskins. Yep, cool. And then we have this thing in the Hebrew. I'm reading from uh, Art Scroll uh, Chumash. Uh, If you read from the JPS or from the Koran Bible or from uh, Koran Tanakh or from the Art Scroll Tanakh, I think, has it. Any of the more, any of the Jewish translations, it'll probably have takash skins. If you read from a a, a non-Jewish translation, you know, NIV, NRSV, ESV, um, it has a whole range of stuff. Um, Some have badger skins which is interesting. Some have like porpoise skins. I think I even read one translation and some of you may know, I don't remember which one it was, but it even mentioned like unicorn, (laughs) unicorn skins. Really, there's some really interesting things. And when you really dig at this word and, and you listen to, you know, uh, listen to experts talk about it, um, they'll, the the people that know, they'll tell you like, we don't really know. (laughs) So, um, you know, I don't know that it was porpoise, which, which would be kind of cool because it would be um, it would be weather you know waterproof which i guess would be a good thing for, i i don't know it also could be a dying process is something else that i've heard um, it could be a process of a way of treating wool and dyeing wool um, that takash refers to a certain you know it it changes it to a, a takash skin uh, a certain dyed skin a treated skin so i don't know that's a you know that's another thing not sure um but it's interesting to see all the variation and uh, the truth is we don't really, 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 truly know. Uh, okay. And then we have, uh, yeah, the wood and the oil and the spices and then the stones uh, for the ephod and the breastplate. All right. And then verse eight, verse eight says, they shall make a sanctuary for me, a sanctuary for me, a migdash, um, that I may dwell among them, that I may dwell among them. In verse nine like everything that i show you the form of the tabernacle and the form of all its vessels and so shall you do so the, the 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 big question here or the big idea here for this first segment is what is it how how is it fathomable that the indescribable uh larger than words uh you know conceptually we can 't even wrap our heads around the idea of god right i mean let 's just be honest. Yes, the scriptures explain God and explain how He works in people and in creation, but when we think about the the you know the enormity and the just the the unbounding idea of what what and who God is, we can 't wrap our minds around it it's too it 's too big for us. And so how is it that this God decides that he wants to, to build a house or he wants to build a dwelling place among his people? Now, I, I looked up some commentary on this um, because I kind of heard different things. And, you know, we always hear stuff and it's like, oh, that's cool, whatever. Well, I don't like to hear things and think, oh, well, that's cool. If I hear something, I want to know where you find it so I can go and source it. So I can read it for myself. Now, what I'm not gonna be able to do today is give you that source. I'm sorry. I, I read it in. um, uh, Nope, I didn't read it. I heard a rabbi talking about it, and I don't remember where it was. I'm so so sorry. But the one of the oldest uh, traditions in translating this verse uh, make me make a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. Uh, There's a very old tradition. Uh, where the Jewish people have translated this, instead of dwelling among them, the Hebrew word is uh, betocham, B-E-T-H-O-C-H-A-M, betocham. Instead of among them, they've translated this as in them, that I may dwell in them, which is, is really fascinating to me because, you know, spoiler alert, we get to the uh the christian scriptures to so the new testament and yeshua basically takes on the identity of the temple and says i'm i'm the temple and then he turns to disciples later you know in the epistles and and he says like you guys are the temple right and uh, we 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 see that in the the epistles and through paul's writings and stuff and so this this the 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 thing that we always fight is um you know in, in christianity the idea is well you know, back then God just dwelt among them and now God dwells in us. And that's the big difference, right? They could never have God's presence in their hearts, in their lives. And now we can. And so that's the, you know, that's a big difference. And this shows that there's a very, very, very old understanding that Hashem might have dwelt among them in a, you know, in a a tent, in a structure but that the people understood it are are not long after you know the this original generation, um, they begin to understand that as that it wasn't just good enough to have Hashem in their midst, but that they were all responsible to make a place for them in their own lives, for Him in their own lives, in their own hearts, and uh, and I personally believe that that's what the Mishkan and the uh, the services, the carbonate, the offerings, uh, all these things are about is about interfacing. Uh, to where to to teach us uh to be the 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 uh, uh the the torah um torah habayit, uh the the torah of the temple the teaching of the temple is to instruct us how to make a space for a and and that 's what the temple and tabernacle is all about um, this you know we we come in and i 've said this recently but we come into Torah different ways right. Uh, some of us come in through Shabbat, and like that's how the Father, you know, stirs our heart. Some of us come in through, you know, I came in through dietary instructions. To be honest, um, that's how I found out that Torah was a thing, and kind of got my, you know, my switch flipped. And um, but you know, we all come in different ways, and I think it's important that we understand the centrality of sacred space to the Torah, um, of the Tabernacle, of the Temple to the Torah. Uh, Because if you think about a wheel, think about a bicycle wheel, right? And it's got all these spokes, all these wire spokes. And what are the spokes there for? Well, they they push out and they pull in on the circumference of the the tire to keep it round. And if you you can tighten and loosen those spokes, and if you tighten or loosen in certain ways, the tire becomes misshapen. Uh, if you take spokes out, the tire becomes misshapen. But the worst of all is if the hub is removed. If the hub is removed, then the spokes have nothing to attach to, then the tire is no good. It, it's just, you know, it, it just goes kaput. Um, it's no good for anything. And so I'm really convinced, and I, I really, this is really something I'm really passionate about is, this idea that we don't study the tabernacle, we don't study sacred space. So you may study the Sabbath, but you may not study dietary, or you may study the Moedim, but you may not study the name, or you may study the calendar, but you may not study Kedusha, or all these different things. And seeing the feast days, seeing the name, seeing the calendar, seeing the all the the elements that we you know that we have so much derision and division about in the kingdom. Seeing all those things through the context and through the the filter the hub of the tabernacle the temple sacred space it would fix all of our issues it would fix every single disagreement and all it would it would almost completely negate all of that foolishness because we would see it through the lens and its proper placement proper perspective stick around because after the break we're going to get into the mercy seat we'll be right back right after the break All right, welcome back to the second segment in this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I uh, appreciate you guys sticking around. So, um, yeah, I, I I told you I was going to nerd out. I don't have as n- enough time to nerd out like I would really, really like to. Um, but let me just beat this dead horse from last segment again. Um, th- listen, it is vitally, vitally, vitally important that we study the temple and the tabernacle. Um, I think, oh, golly, you sound like a lot like Rico Cortez. Yeah, I mean, I love, I love the work Rico is doing. I love the work that Joseph Good has done. I love the work that's going on around the tabern- t- tabernacle and temple because it's, we, we wear, as Christians, we always wore this badge of honor, like, well, we're the temple now, and, and that's great, except we don't have, a, we don't have a, an inkling, not even a smidgen of an inkling, an a clue about the temple. And about how it worked and what its purpose was and what its functions were and uh, just all the dynamics of the temple. But we're it. We don't know what it is, but we're it. And um, man, I think the kingdom has suffered for that. I think it's suffered for that. Um, You know, again, the the temple is the hub that holds all of the Torah together, in my opinion, Uh, holds it in balance And, you know, what we know about the tabernacle from Christianity, depending on what background you come from, Uh, you know, I spent some time in like charismatic and and spirit filled circles. Uh, And, you know, we talked a lot about the menorah. Right. Because obviously that's Jesus. I, I don't know. Um, and we talk a lot about the altar because that's where you come to, you know, to get saved again or whatever. And uh, and then we and that's you know we talk about the holy holies, you know, holy of holies. We talk about the Shekinah glory, and um, you know we and and that's the things that we know. Um, and yet we don't know anything about the temple's function. Um, we don't know its form. And Yehezkel Ezekiel uh, commands us. Uh, actually, I think it's in this week's parsha. Um, that uh, the, the children of Israel, he said, you know, teach them. God told uh, Yehuzko, uh teach them the form of the temple, its functions, its gates and their ordinances. It's, you know, all of its practices and ordinances and all of these things. I mean, um, th- there's a lot, a lot to learn. And that's why the, the research and the work of Joe Good, uh, especially Enrico Cortez, and some of these guys is so, so incredibly important. Because they are teaching us stuff that has been lost uh, to us for generations, for you know, or maybe have never even been known to the non-Jewish world, and uh, it's really, guys, it's it's super important. I mean, I can't stress enough. Now, and that doesn't mean that you know everybody's going to become a you know twenty-four-seven uh, temple nerd. Um, I, they'd be great, but I know that's not feasible. Uh, but I would encourage you to to find teachers that are teaching about the temple, uh, good teachers. You know, I, like again, Joe Good and Rico Cortez. You know, some of those guys, um, and and people that are connected with them, and and learn from them. If you can't study it yourself, find someone that is studying it and see what they have to say about it and what they can teach you. Uh, I think it's just absolutely, absolutely important. All right, so. Uh, I'm just going to run on, run on, run on. I could say the rest of the episode and just go like, it's really important and just just talk about that. But we're not. Uh, I want to flip over in this Parsha. So it talks about the, um, uh, well, first of all, before we leave that, he says um, in verse 9, like everything that I show you. And so it's, it's uh, very important to understand that uh, when Moshe was on the top of Sinai, Uh, He is shown in what the Hebrew is called a Tavnit, T-A-V-N-I-T-H, or T-A-B-N-I-T-H, Tavnit, which is a blueprint. And the blueprint cannot change and does not change even though we go from a Mishkan, from a a, a tabernacle, uh, to a Solomon's temple with Solomon's palace and then we have that's the first temple and then we have Zerubbabel's temple um in the second that's the second temple and then we have this massive and uh lifelong expansion project by Herod um in the into the 1st century and um so uh, uh, but besides all of that the temple part itself the, the 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 building and its courts and its gates and all stays the same according to the blueprint and uh, that's really Really, really important. Now, what did Moshe see? We don't know, but uh, it's it's important to understand that. So then we talk about the ark, uh, right, in verses ten through sixteen, uh, and the ark is of acacia wood and covered with gold, uh, with staves, and the ark of the the uh, the I'm sorry, the testimonial tablets are placed inside, and then we have in verse seventeen the cover, the cover. So this is, again, from a Hebrew, from a Jewish translation, and uh, yours is going to read a little bit differently, probably, if you have a different type of translation. But starting in verse 17, he says, You shall make a cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits its length and a half a cubit and a half its width, and you shall make two cherubim, cherubim of gold hammered out. You shall make them from both ends of the cover, and you shall make one cherub from the end on one side and one cherub uh, from the end at the other. And from the cover you shall make the caravim at its two ends. The caravim shall be with wings spread upward, sheltering the cover with their wings, with their faces towards one another. Toward the cover shall be the faces of the caravim. You shall place the cover on the ark from above, and into the ark you shall place the testimonial tablets that I shall give you. It is there that I will set my meetings with you, and I shall speak with you from atop the cover, from between the two caravim that are on the ark of the testimonial tablets. Everything that I shall command you to B'nai Israel, the children of Israel. So, this is, uh, of course, speaking of the cover of the ark. And there's some interesting, there's an interesting translation choice here in uh, some of the English versions. And this is, this cover that we read about is called the mercy seat. Um, now, the interesting thing about that is the words mercy nor seat, neither of those words are in the text. Uh, it's not the mercy seat. It's in Hebrew, the kaporit, kaporit, K-A-P-P-O-R-E-T, kaporit. Uh, that is the cover. And uh, so where do we get mercy seat? Well, let's first talk about the the um, the functions of the cover. Well, we know it holds the cherubim, right? The, uh, uh, the cherubim. But we also know one very, very important thing that we actually are told its function is, And he says, uh, Hashem says in verse twenty-one. I'm sorry, verse twenty-two. It is there I will set my meetings with you. Um, You know when he when he speaks to him, his appointed times, his moedim. I will set my meetings with you. Not just the feast days, but any any set time where Hashem says, "Come before me. I want to talk to you." It's going to be right here before uh, the mercy seat. So this is uh, important to kind of get your head around. So you have. While the tabernacle is actually being constructed, the, the whole and all the furnishings are being done, you know, being fashioned and created from the truma that's been given, Moses is actually, he sets up the ohel moed. The ohel moed is the tent of meeting. Ohel, tent, moed, meeting, right? So we get moedim, the meetings, the appointed times, so this is, could be—sometimes I think it's called the, the Ten of Appointment, um, the Ten of Meeting. Uh, it's, it's got different ways to translate that. But the Ohel Moed is actually set up uh, outside or away from the construction site, and inside the Ohel Moed are, is the holy place which uh, contains, if you walk into the, uh, the holy place, through the, through the curtain, the parochet, called the parochet. If you walk in through the parochit, uh, on the right you have the lecham chapanim, the table of showbread, where's twelve two two stacks of six loaves, twelve loaves all together, um, that are changed out regularly. And then on the left side you have the menorah, um, the seven-branched uh, candlestick, the menorah. And then in front of you, uh, you have the uh, ark of incense— uh, or the altar of incense, rather. Uh, and so that is the holy place. There is another parochit, another curtain, that divides the holy place from Kodesh HaKodeshim, the holy of holies. And uh, in there, the only thing in there is the Ark of the Covenant, uh, Aron Kodesh, the holy ark. And um, so Moshe and Aaron were able to go and meet with Hashem, and performed services to Hashem to a point in that Ohelmoed, even though the complete tabernacle had not been constructed yet. When the walls of the tabernacle, the curtain, all the outside curtains of the tabernacle, the laver had been completed, the altar had been completed, everything, the, the Ohelmoed was then moved into uh, the enclosures and was set up there. And so... Uh, the, the whole thing began to function at that point. But where Hashem met with Moshe and Aharon, uh, before that was the Ohel Moed, which is actually set up in a separate place uh, to the north, if I'm not mistaken, uh, of the actual sanctuary site, of the tabernacle site. And um, so this thing about the ark is where Hashem would meet with Aharon, where he would speak with him everything that would be concerning uh, B'nai Israel. So let's talk about this Kaporet again, this cover so we know it's the place for the meetings, right? That's, that's laid out perfectly in Scripture. That's very, very clear. Um, but what else is there about the kipporet, uh about the, this cover? Well, if you think about the word Kippurit, kipporit, is there any other word that you can think of that comes to mind when we say the word kaporet? Now, some of you may already know this. Some of you may not. But the word I'm looking for is Kippur or kiporim. Yom Kippur, right? We call it the Day of Atonement, okay? Um, but Kippur comes from the same word as Kippurit, which is to cover or to wipe. Uh, in, in Kippur is more of an idea of wiping, uh, like wiping with blood, blood that's cleansing, uh, to, to cleanse. And so this this idea of the cover tied to Yom Kippur, that's Why is that so interesting? Well, we're going to read about it. So if we flip over to uh, Parsha Acharei, which is in Vayikra, Leviticus chapter 16, uh, this is all about Yom Kippur. Chapter 16 is all about um, Yom Kippur, or more technically accurate, Yom HaKippurim, uh, the Day of Atonements. So it's the death of Aaron's sons, um, and then we get to casting lots, and there's an explanation, uh, a general, I'll say, explanation of the Yom Kippur service, because the Yom Kippur service is highly, highly detailed, highly choreographed, and if you ever want to read about some fascinating temple nerdiness stuff, uh, and you really want to geek out— then uh go to the temple Institute website and uh follow their presentation about uh the Yom Kippur the day of Yom Kippur uh, wow uh the preparation for it the uh the day itself the i mean the the high priest cannot the Gadol basically cannot make one wrong step the whole service is invalid it, it is absolutely mind blowing um uh, the detail and the the attention that happens there so uh in uh, in verse twelve of uh, Vaikra sixteen, um, we have the incense service where the Kohen Gadol uh, takes the incense and goes in uh, to the Kodesha Kodashim, and there's a cloud that clo- that a cloud of incense that blankets the Kaporet that is atop the tablets of the testimony, right? And then verse 14, it says, And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle with his forefinger upon the eastern front of the kaporit, and in front of the ark cover, and he shall sprinkle seven times from the blood with his forefinger. He shall slaughter the sin offering, the khatat, or the, the sin offering, purification offering is another way to uh, translate that. The the purification offering he goat of the people and bring its blood within the curtain and he shall do with its blood as he had done with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it upon the ark cover upon the kaporet and in front of the kaporet thus he shall provide listen to this verse thus he shall provide atonement upon the sanctuary for the contaminations of the children of Israel even their even for their rebellious sins among all their sins. And so shall he do for the tent of meeting that dwells with them amidst their contamination. Any person shall not be in the the tent of meeting. They will help Moed when he comes to provide atonement in the sanctuary until his departure. He shall provide atonement for himself, for his household and for the entire congregation of Israel. Verse 18, he shall go out to the altar that is before Hashem and make atonement upon it. He shall take some of the blood and the he goat, etc. And it it explains the, the service there. What I want to really stress about this is that the day of Yom Kippur, and we're going to tie this all back together to Kippur it and cover and all that stuff, but the, the thrust of Yom Kippur is not, the in, the in the wilderness at least, in the temple setting, is the immediate thrust is not forgiveness of sin. It's certainly not forgiveness of individual sin. I know that that's what Yom Kippur is to us, and it's beautiful, and it's right, and it's it's the way we should think about it. However, in the days of the tabernacle, in the days of the temple, I want to explain to you why it's important to think about it the way that it was, and it will hopefully adjust the way we think about it present day a little bit, and it should. We asked the question at the beginning of this: What is it about a perfect omnipotent omniscient omnipresent you know holy god that he would live in a house that is built by men's built by men's hands now the cleanest way if god wanted a dwelling on earth among his people what would be the cleanest way to achieve that it would be for him to like drop something out of heaven right Um, it would be made by him or by the angels. It would be perfect. It wouldn't be tainted by men's hands. It wouldn't, you know, there would be no nicks or scratches anywhere. It would be fit for the King. It would be a heavenly dwelling here on earth. That would be, that would be the cleanest way to do it. But that's, it's not what Hashem does. He wants to partner with the people. He wants the people to build his house. I think this is a pattern we see over and over and over throughout scripture, that, you know, Hashem could have come and just done done with creation what he wanted to, but he didn't. What did he do? He called Adam and Chava, right? He could have just done it himself, but he didn't. He wanted to partner with humanity in his dwelling, a place fit for the eternal king. Wouldn't it be better if he just came, if he just sent it down, you know, from heaven, just perfect? But he didn't. He asked for the help of humanity to build it. And gave them gave us or gave them the responsibility, the Israelites the responsibility now, when Hashem moves in when the altar is dedicated seven days, and Hashem consumes his presence, consumes the altar, the offering on the altar, and he moves in the shkinah moves in, then the house becomes holy because of who lives in the house, right so parents. Kids, I want you to really think about this because this is really a parent-kid lesson. This is a family lesson. The house is holy because of who lives in the house. The tent is holy because of who lives in the tent. Now, the people, the priests who are coming to serve in the temple, in the tabernacle, they're not always exactly holy. They're not always exactly right, physically or spiritually, emotionally, mentally, right? We're human. We have bad days. It happens. Get over it. The Kohen Gadol himself probably sometimes is a little off and is not giving his best to Hashem. Maybe he missed, maybe he walked near a dead body and didn't realize it, or something You know, something crazy could happen, and, and then he goes into service and doesn't know it. Not on Yom Kippur, but just during his regular you know, regular daily, weekly services. The people, the people that come to bring offerings, to bring karbonot to the, to the, uh, to the tabernacle, do you think they're the epitome of cleanliness? Uh, and I don't mean cleanliness like, you know, they took a shower and they have deodorant and cologne on. I mean just ritual purity, that purity that only happens when you interface with the tabernacle. No, of course they're not. They're farmers and, and uh, and you know, and uh, shepherds and, you know, metallurgists and, and, you know, all these different things. They are not priests and their their day-to-day life is not necessarily um, impacted or governed by be, having to be in the tabernacle. And so they can they contract they, they mess up, they contract stuff on the way of doing life. But they bring those things to the tabernacle when they come to bring their Tamid offerings, their morning and evening daily offerings. And so throughout the year, the tabernacle becomes contaminated. Now how many have ever experienced mom or dad? Maybe your mom or dad, um, if you're grown. <laughs> but I'm sure you can look back and remember fondly sometimes when maybe your room wasn't clean, or your you know your brothers and sisters y'all were uh, you know the house was a mess. There were shoes on the floor. There were toys everywhere. Uh, there were you know empty dishes or you know leftovers on the table or on the end table or uh, you know if you were you, you had a honey bun wrapper in your room or something. Whatever uh you know, plates of food in your room. And do you remember mom or dad absolutely losing their minds from time to time and cleaning house and like throwing stuff away and it's just like a tornado comes through the house, right? Well what happens? Everybody in the house gets really really uh, detailed about how clean the house is for a few days, right? Everybody's clothes is picked up and put in the hampers. There's no food anywhere. The kitchen's clean. The floors are swept and vacuumed and mopped. And every, you know, the windows are clean. Everything's good for a few days, maybe a week, maybe two if, you know, if it was a real bad blow up. And then what ends up happening? Slowly but surely, things get laxed again. You get busy. The schedule's crazy. Everybody's everywhere. And the house begins to, to get messy again. That day that that mom or dad freak out and lose their mind, and everybody has to clean, and like, it's, it's a reset, where hopefully after this reset, you're not going to leave your dirty dishes anymore, and you're going to pick your clothes up off the floor. That day, that day is Yom Kippur. That is the day where it's not primarily about the sins of the people, the personal, individual sins of the people. It's about the way the people have contaminated the holy dwelling of the holy God. And so when, when Aharon or any Kohen Gadol goes in uh, and does the Yom Kippur service, first primarily he makes atonement for the tabernacle, it, the, its furnishings, the altar, the ark. He atones for it. Now, that's something that really boggles our minds in Christianity. Why does an inanimate object need atonement? Why does an inanimate object it doesn't sin? What, what why does it why does the altar, why does the ark need atonement? Because we don't understand what atonement really is. And it comes from this kapor, kapoor, kapor it, to cover. And it's the idea of wiping, using blood to wipe away contamination, so that the house can be clean and pure for the dwelling presence of Hashem. Because it's about who lives in the house. Now in the process of that The Kohen Gadol, his and his family's sins are atoned. The the priests, those sins are wiped clean. But they're not wiped clean from them as much as it is they're wiped clean from how they've affected the dwelling place of Hashem. They are wiped from the altar. They're wiped from the ark. They're wiped from the menorah. They're wiped from the laver. The tabernacle is cleansed. And by by default, the people are forgiven and are cleansed for the way that they contaminated the tabernacle, hopefully, so that the next year they will be more careful about how they treat the holy dwelling place of Hashem. That's the day of atonement. That's what atonement's really about. Atonement's not about forgiving your individual sins so that you don't feel guilty about it anymore. So fast forward again to the idea that we are all corporately the temple we are all corporately the sacred space where Hashem's presence dwells among men. Now, in His people, right? And so whenever we ask forgiveness and we seek the atonement of Hashem, what are we seeking and what are we receiving? What are we receiving is probably a better question. We are receiving a cleansing not because we need our consciences, you know, to be at peace or, you know, or satiated or whatever. No, we're, we're receiving atonement because of who we're inviting and who we hope to continue to live in our lives that's why continually seeking forgiveness and continually making shiva returning repentance is so important it's not so that we can you know we can gain anything other than the fact that hashem will continue to dwell in us that we will clean the house Because we value his presence over our guilt or our conscience or anything anything selfish that may be amongst it. Yom Kippur is not about being selfish. Yom Kippur is not about having your debts forgiven and your sins forgiven. Yom Kippur is about realizing how we dirtied the holy habitation of the holy king of the universe. And so every time we ask for forgiveness, every time we we make shuvah, every time we are preparing or or we realize we did something, it's not that we wronged. It's not that we wronged ourselves or that we we need to you know we need to ask forgiveness so we can make it into heaven. Our concern should be that we are supposed to be the housing of the holy presence of Hashem. And when we do something, we are contaminating His dwelling place. And so every Yom Kippur, we're reminded next year we have to be more careful that we treat our, our, his dwelling place with the utmost respect. And that's why we should seek to become more holy. That's why we should be motivated to be better image bearers. Because the tabernacle and the temple was there to bear the image of a perfect God to the world. That's our job. So I hope that you found this interesting as always. Can't wait to talk to you again next week. Until then, shalom, shalom.